Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. Most people, I did a little research this week, and I, I, I was looking at, at what people think about the afterlife. Most Americans, in fact, 80% of Americans believe in the afterlife. But then I came across this statistic. This may shock you a little bit. The Austin Institute of Family and Culture found that 32% of atheists and agnostics believe in an afterlife. I just think that's peculiar. Uh, it surprises me. Uh, one study I read this week gave statistics on belief in the afterlife according to religious tradition. So they looked at, at um, liberal and Protestant Catholics, uh, lib yeah, liberal Protestants and Catholics. They looked at conservative Protestants and Catholics. They looked at Jews, Mormons, Muslims, Buddhists, the Hindu faith. And they had varying degrees of belief in the afterlife. But here is the, the statistic that blew my mind. I read this, and I, I literally stared at the screen, just incredulous. that, that I just couldn't believe what I was looking at. Of those who identified as evangelical Christian, which is kind of what camp we would fall under. I know that name has kind of a negative connotation politically, but truth be told, that's kind of where we fall. We are evangelical Christians. Only 94% of evangelical Christians believe in the afterlife. And you're like, Brett, that's a really high number. Well, that number should be 100. I mean, I stared at the screen in disbelief because here's my question. What did you put your faith in? When you said, I'm going to follow Jesus, why would you do that if, he, if you don't believe that he rose from the dead and that you're going to raise from the dead? It, it may, I, I just I kept scratching my head like it doesn't make any sense. Considering all the different categories from conservative to liberal Christian, exactly how do you call yourself a Christian if you don't believe in an afterlife? And here's why I asked the question. Paul addressed the same thing in Corinthians. In the, in the church at Corinth, the city of Corinth was a, a big city. It was a metropolitan. Okay, think like a New York, a New York City. Um, lots of stuff going on, lots of different political persuasions, clubs, um, cults, religious belief systems, a lot of political stuff happening, military stuff, just lots of teachers. If you wanted, whatever you wanted to find and whatever you wanted to immerse yourself in, in, in Corinth, you could. And the Christians in Corinth were struggling with this idea of the afterlife and the resurrection. And so Paul deals with it and he writes to them and he says, now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? The idea that someone would give mental assent to the resurrection of Jesus and yet not believe in the resurrection for themselves, is, is, it's inconceivable to me. Yet there are people like that who exist. Now, you may be here today and you may describe yourself as an atheist. Uh, whenever I do this, you know, home folk walk up to me and they're like, Brett, we don't have any atheists going to church here. Oh, you would be surprised. I have no doubt over the course of the three services we've had this morning that I have addressed some atheists this morning. And here's what I want to say to you, from personally from me to you. I am so thrilled that you're here today. And I want you to know that you're welcome here. We don't look down our nose at you. We don't feel superior to you. We respect your position, we respect your intellect, we respect where you're coming from. 
We're all on different journeys. We're all in different places, and we understand that. And, and if that's where you are, we respect that. And we're, I'm thrilled that you would feel comfortable enough with us to walk in and give us a little bit of your time this morning. So thank you. Maybe you're here, and you're an agnostic. And what agnostic means is we get that word from the Greek, the word gnosko, which means to know. So if you're an agnostic, it means that you don't know what you, you believe. You, I'm just not sure. I don't know if I believe that in a resurrection. I don't know if I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I don't know what, where I am on the whole God thing. I just don't know. You're, you would describe yourself as an agnostic. Again, welcome to Cross Lane. You, you are among friends here. And we, we just want you to be at home and, and you take your time. And if you never come to a place where you ever make a decision like that, we just want you to know that there's a fellowship of people that will walk with you through life. For all of you today, I want you to go on this journey with me as we talk about the resurrection of Jesus. For those of you who are Christ followers, my goal is that when you leave, that your faith is just a little bit more bolstered. It's just you're encouraged as you leave today. That you're, you know, we, we just sometimes we need a reminder of how awesome the resurrection of Jesus Christ is, and that's my goal today. For those of you who might not believe that Jesus rose from the dead, perhaps today will be the day that you hear something that pushes you over the edge. That maybe I'll say something and you'll think to yourself, you know what, I never thought about it like that before. I have, you know what, that piece of information I have not fit into my puzzle. And when I put that, when I plug that piece of information into everything else, it just kind of came together. And I, now I got some stuff to think about. I'm hoping that today I might say something and God may change it around so that you hear it. And when you hear it, it changes your mind. Now, here's what I, I've, you know, I have, I've told people this and I, I, I really believe it's true. I could get up here and say hickory dickory dock. And God could take that and change it so that you could hear whatever it is you need to hear and walk out of here and go, God spoke to me today. I, I believe that's true. It's Easter Sunday, and Easter is always devoted to talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Here's the important thing that you need to know this morning. Those of us who follow Jesus do not follow Jesus because of something that he taught. We don't follow Jesus because the Bible says so. We follow Jesus because of an event in history, the resurrection. Now again, you may be here and you may not believe in the resurrection, but I just want to be clear, that's what we're here to celebrate today because the resurrection lies at the heart of our faith. Now, let's just, let me just say this real quickly about the resurrection. If you don't believe in the resurrection, I, my next question would be, have you researched it? Have you investigated it? Or have you just decided, you know what, I don't want to deal with those religious people, I don't want to deal with Christians, so I'm just going to tell them I don't believe. I'm just going to proclaim to be an atheist. Well, that's dangerous game to play. And my challenge to you is if you're going to tell me that you're an atheist, okay, I can handle that. I can handle that. But at least do your homework. At least investigate. At least do some research. Here's what I would tell you. You do not have to check your brain at the door to follow Jesus. Really, really smart people over the course of history have given their heart and life to Jesus, believing in a resurrection. That's not good enough for you. The guy who, invent, who mapped out the human genome, wouldn't you say he's pretty smart? He believes in the resurrection of Jesus. 
okay? So I'm not asking you to check your brain at the door. I'm not asking you to say, oh, just suspend everything that you know is real. No, investigate. Listen, the world has several people in it who set out to disprove the resurrection. In fact, I could tell you about three different guys who set out to write books to disprove the resurrection. And they dug into the facts. And the more they dug into the facts and the more they looked into it, one of them was an investigative journalist. The more they dug into the facts, the more they got confronted with the reality that, oh my goodness, I think this guy literally raised from the dead. And instead of writing a book about how the resurrection didn't happen, they wrote books about how the resurrection did happen. When you start to look into the resurrection, everything changes. And there is plenty, plenty of evidence to support the idea of a resurrected Christ. So you can't just say, well, I just don't believe that. you got to do your homework. That's the intellectual, intellectually responsible thing to do. Earlier, I read to you from a time when Paul addressed the church at Corinth. A little further down, he says this, speaking about the resurrection. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then a little further down, he says, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Our culture has been greatly impacted by the resurrection. Egyptians believed in the afterlife. They believed that the world that you came into was very much like the world that you had just left. And so, you know, when, they, when people died, the, the, especially the rich and the, the, um, like the, the pharaohs and people like that, you know, they had really nice tombs. Some of them got pyramids. And so what they would do is they, they believed that when they went into the afterlife, they would need the things that they had in this life, so they would fill the tomb with all of the necessary things that they had in this life. Servants, horses, chariots, utensils, weapons, food, all kinds of stuff. They would just put it all in the tomb. Which makes you think, you know, if we took that approach, what kind of things would we put in a tomb if we were going to be put in a tomb? You know, ladies, if... They, if, if you, if you passed away and your husband was going to send along for you in the afterlife the things that you would need in the afterlife, the things that we associate with women, you know, like uh, just off the top of my head, just makeup and blow dryers and curling irons and, and um, high-heeled shoes, you know, no doubt you would get to the other side and you'd be cussing your husband because he'd, he'd forgotten something. Like, I can't believe he didn't know me any better than that. You know, you wouldn't have it and you're like, it's his fault. For guys, we would put in their cars, knives, guns, you know, hunting equipment, fast cars, you know, footballs, things that we, we think that we need. We would put all that stuff in there. Here's a question for you. What would they put in your tomb for you to take to the afterlife with you? For some of you, no doubt your cell phone would be in there. For our kids, gaming consoles, like they think if you disconnect them, they're going to bleed out, right, if they don't have their gaming console. Um, maybe for you it's a computer or a monitor. Maybe for you it's a car. Some of you, no doubt, it is Starbucks. I'm just telling you right now, if you put me in a tomb and don't include a Krispy Kreme donut, somebody's going to have to answer for that, all right? Got to have one. Got to have one. So for those of us who are Christians... Our view of the afterlife has been greatly influenced by what Jesus has taught us because before Jesus came along, nobody really knew. It was kind of a mystery. Even religious leaders couldn't settle in on what the, the true 
teachings about the afterlife should be. And the interesting thing about Jesus is he always came back to that one central word. It was always about the resurrection with him. He was constantly pointing to it. There was a group in Jesus' day, religious leaders, if you can believe that, who did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in the afterlife. They believed that you lived a life pleasing to God, then you died, that was it. And they were religious leaders who did not believe in the resurrection. They were known as Sadducees. Sadducees. And the way you remember that is they didn't believe in the resurrection, so they were sad, you see. Now, you scoff, you'll never forget it. You'll never forget it. I know what a Sadducee is. You're going to walk into work in the morning all high and mighty like I learned a new word yesterday. Sadducee. So one of the things that they wanted to do because they didn't believe in Jesus, they, they didn't believe he was the Messiah, is they wanted to trick Jesus. They wanted to kind of catch him in this thing. And so their point was they wanted to show Jesus that believing in a resurrection was silly, that it was a fallacy. So they came up with this idea, this story to demonstrate that there couldn't possibly be a resurrection. They drew this from a place in the Old Testament that, that has this teaching about if a man marries a woman and, and they do not produce a, a, a male heir, then it becomes the responsibility of that man's next oldest brother to marry this woman, and he is to produce a male heir with her, and they would name that child after the first husband to, to honor his, his legacy and that his name would carry on. And so they would, they would they really, it was about keeping the name alive in Israel, and so this, this, these Sadducees, they seized on this, this teaching. And so they come up with this hypothetical situation. Don't you love hypothetical situations? I had a job interview one time that the pastor gave me a hypothetical situation to see how I would respond, and I failed miserably because I didn't do anything the way he would want me to do it. Consequently, I didn't work for him. <laughs> I didn't go there. Hypothetical situation. These guys come to Jesus with this hypothetical situation. Here's the hypothetical a man has six brothers. There's seven of them. He marries this woman, and he does not produce a male heir, and he dies. In keeping with the scriptures, the next oldest marries this woman, and he does not produce a male heir, and he dies. And they work him down the list, right? Like there's seven of these guys, and each one of them is going to marry this woman. And I, I've been saying this morning, you know, if I'm like guy number five or number, like eventually at some point you catch on and you just go, I'm good, right? Like, she's killing people. If you marry her, you end up dead. I don't want to marry her. But in the hypothetical, they go through all seven. There is no male heir produced. And so then they all die, and she dies, and then they go to heaven. That's the hypothetical situation. So after telling this story to Jesus, they have a question for Jesus. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And they're thinking to themselves, we got him. We got him. I think they expected Jesus to just throw his hands up and go, man, you guys are so smart. You know, I didn't see you all coming. I shh, wish I'd done my homework. You got me. Game over. And they think they have shown that the idea of a resurrection is crazy because in that situation, she would have seven husbands in the afterlife. And in Matthew 22, we get Jesus' response 
And his response is, is so encouraging to us because it allows us to see what Jesus thought about the resurrection. Here's what he said, Matthew 22, verse 29. You are in error because you do not know the scriptures. That is a dangerous thing to say to the religious leaders of the day. These guys think they're brilliant. You don't say stuff like this to them. They've dedicated their, they're professional Bible people. They've spent their whole lives studying. They took pride in how well they knew the Bible. You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, which means that Jesus believed in a resurrection, he believed that when you die, that's not the end. That's great news for you and me. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, I've taught this passage before. I taught it sometime back here at Cross Lane. And when I got done, um, I had a woman walk out of the service, and she was like seeking me out like a heat-seeking missile. Like, where is he? Where is he? And she tracked me down. She was not happy. She said, I have a problem. I said, I'm, okay, what's the problem? She said, what you said in there. I said, well, I said a lot. Could you narrow it down? She said, yeah, that thing about, about what you said about I won't be my husband's wife in heaven. She said, I love my husband. I want to be his wife in heaven. She said, you said I won't be his wife. I said, well, hold on just a minute. I did not say that. Jesus said that. Totally threw him under the bus. Totally. He, he can handle it, okay? He, he's a big boy. He can handle it. Like, Lord, you, I need some help. You're telling me I won't be married to my husband in heaven? No, Jesus is telling you that. See, I don't think, I don't think what he's saying is that we're going to be in every way like angels. I don't really think that's the intent of what Jesus is trying to say. And I don't know that I'm going to nail this teaching exactly perfect, okay? So umbrella of grace, give me a little grace in this. And I've been telling people all morning, I'm going to get to heaven one of these days and God's going to sit me down and he's going to say, Brett, you know that thing that you used to teach everybody? Yeah, totally missed that up. You, you don't have any idea. I, I've got a friend that's a, a professor in Bible college and he says, he says, I'm, I'm fond of standing in front of my students and saying, you know, 33% of what I've told you is wrong. I just don't know which 33%. Like, he understands that, you know, we're not always going to get it right. There's something that I know I believe at my core that's probably wrong. And one of these days, we'll get to heaven, and God's going to straighten it all out. So I don't know how close I am on this, but I think I've got this. And I think what God's trying to say here is that you're not going to be given in marriage husband and wife, but we should, what we are, see what we are first on earth is we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are brothers and sisters in Christ before we are given in marriage. I, when I'm talking to young girls and they're, you know, they're like, they're, they're wanting to get married and they're looking for a guy and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and I'll, I'll try and get to them and say, listen, the number one thing that I would tell you about your whole dating life is when you find a guy that loves Jesus, you find a guy that loves Jesus and puts Jesus first, he will know how to love you. And he will honor you and he will take care of you. And you're all worried about finding Mr. Right. What you need to be doing is worrying about becoming Mrs. Right. You need to get yourself right with Jesus. You need to make sure that you're in the places that you need to be and have all your stuff together so that when you come across this wonderful guy that God's going to have for you, you guys will approach this the right way, and you, but you are brother and sister in Christ first. Now, 
If, like me, you are happily married, this doesn't come as great news, right? I love Dee Dee. I like being married to Dee Dee. I would like to think I'd be married to her in heaven, but according to Jesus, that's not how it's going to be. If, however, you are unhappily married, that might be reason enough right there to become a Christian. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying. One little side note, and this is brilliant on the part of God, and I really think that, we, that if we learn this lesson here on earth, it would greatly improve our marriages. It really would. Too often we become familiar with our spouse, too familiar. We become so familiar that we let our guard down. And there have been times when I've caught myself talking to Dee Dee in a way, and I don't mean disrespectfully, I don't mean hatefully or anything like that, but there, there just are times that in the familiarity of our relationship that I find myself talking to her in a way that I would not talk to one of my sisters in Christ in this room. Right? You just... Like, there's things I would, I would say, I've said things to Dee Dee, not, again, not hateful or mean, or it's kind of hard to explain, but there's just, when I talk to you, I'm respectful, I'm, you know, I don't want to misstep, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, I don't, I'm trying to be really careful, and there have been times that I've caught myself, and I haven't always been as careful with Dee Dee, and if I had approached her as my sister in Christ instead of my wife, I might have elevated things, I might have encouraged her better I might have made her feel better she might be more secure or whatever I'm just saying that when your marriage gets troubled a lot of times what's happened is you've stopped treating them like a brother or sister in Christ and for those of us who are followers of Jesus this is an important distinction to make you treat them like a brother or a sister not like a wife and when you do that, I promise you, when you start to serve and when you start to respect and when you start to treat them with dignity, things change. I think it would greatly enhance your marriage. Jesus has them on the subject of the resurrection, so he makes some comments. He says, but about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? Now, this is huge. These are Old Testament scholars. They have dedicated their life to the study of the Old Testament scriptures, and they have concluded that there is no evidence of a resurrection. They have concluded that God didn't talk about it, there isn't one, and we shouldn't believe in one. That's, that's their, their conclusion. And yet Jesus says, haven't you read? In other words, there's something in the Old Testament about resurrection that you missed. That was a huge affront to the Sadducees. And then he quotes what God said to Moses. So what I'm going to read to you is Jesus is going to quote what God said to Moses because they criticize Jesus all the time saying, hey, you came to destroy the teachings of Moses because Moses was huge to these guys. He's like a rock star. And so in verse 32, he says, he's quoting God talking to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then I think he paused, and I think he looked at him, and he's kind of waiting on this to settle on him, to, for them to figure out what he was saying. And I'm not quite sure that these guys figured it out. I do think that the crowd that's listening, I think they may have gotten it before these religious leaders got it, before it dawned on them. He's, you know, the, the crowd's hearing it, and they're saying, wait a minute, he's, he's on to something there. When God spoke to Moses, Abraham was dead. Isaac was dead, Jacob was dead, and yet God said to Moses, I am, not I was, as if in past tense, as if they've died and they're no more. No, he said, I am the God 
of those three people who have passed away, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am. Those are two of the best words in the whole Bible. And I would, I would just encourage you to think about what does it mean for God to refer to himself as I am. Because that, that holds a special place in time when you start, if you ever want to have a conversation with me about what I think about I am, I would love to do that with you. Just catch me sometime and we'll talk about it. I, I love thinking about what I am, the significance of what it means eternally, what it means for our relationship with Christ. They, those two little words, three letters, packed with significance. I am, which means these guys didn't just die and, and cease to exist. They exist. They are somewhere. And then Jesus, just in case they didn't get it, he adds this in the second part of verse 32. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were not physically alive, but they were alive somewhere. And then I love this phrase, verse 33. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teachings. In one moment... In one statement, he dismantles the theology of the Sadducees about life after death. All this time, they'd had this thought that, that, that it was one way, and Jesus comes along and says, oh yeah, there's a resurrection because God is not the God of the dead, but God is the God of the living. Listen, that is really good news for you and me. There is a resurrection. And then Jesus said something that they'd never heard before, maybe they never heard since. Sometime after that, Jesus' close friend, Lazarus, passes away. Now just let me ask you a question. Wouldn't you love to be known as the close friend of Jesus? I mean, we talk about, you know, I'm a friend of God, I'm a friend of Jesus. I'm talking about when you die, Jesus weeps. That's how close Lazarus and Jesus are. Lazarus had two sisters, Martha and Mary, and when Lazarus gets sick, Martha and Mary send word to Jesus. He's not in Bethany. He's somewhere else. So they send a messenger to go track him down in another city and say, hey, tell him that his friend Lazarus is sick and is going to die if he doesn't get here. What does Jesus do upon hearing this news? It's pretty peculiar. He doesn't leave right away and rush to the side of Lazarus like you would think that he would do. We're told that Jesus waited. In fact, Jesus waited so long that Mary and Martha had already had the funeral and already had Lazarus in a tomb by the time Jesus shows up. And somebody saw Jesus coming into town and, and got word to Martha and Mary, hey, hey, the Lord's coming. And Martha goes out to meet Jesus as he's coming into town. And this is what she said. Lord, if you had been here my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know. He will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. See, they'd, they'd hoped for resurrection. The, the, the Old Testament didn't say a whole lot about it, but they clung to the idea that that the, the, the body and the, the spirit would somehow reunite in some capacity as a resurrection. And then Jesus looks her right in the eye in this moment and he says, Martha, I am the resurrection. It isn't some event out there somewhere. It's not a date on a timeline. It's not a theory. It's not a theology. It's not a, it's not a belief system. It's not a philosophy. I am the resurrection and the life. Who would say such a thing? 
I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes, not in what I teach, although that's important. You'd hear me say that and you say, well, Brett, you think what Jesus taught's not important? Absolutely not. I, I've, spent, I've, de- I've dedicated my life to the teachings of Jesus. Yes, they're important. Brett, are you saying doctrine's not important? I'm not saying that. Doctrine is important. But what I'm trying to say is I've met people who knew the doctrines and I've met people who knew all the things that Jesus taught, but they did not seem to me to know Jesus. They never missed church. They knew their Bibles better than me. They dressed better than me. They spoke better than me. They were all put together, but they didn't really seem to know Jesus. They knew all the right stuff. And see, that's the thing. You can know all about Jesus and not know Jesus. You can spout all the facts. You can say everything there is to know about Jesus. The question is, do you know Jesus? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes, not in my philosophy, not in my teaching, not in some grand theology somewhere. He who believes in me will live even though he died. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, she said. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. That is the confession we heard Dick and Deb make before their baptism. Here's why that's important. We talk about a personal relationship with Christ. Here's why that's important. He looked at her and he said, listen, it's all about me. It's not about taking notes on the things that I'm saying. It's not about you know, just following me around from place to place. It's not, it's not just listening to me and sitting at my feet. This is about me, the person. I'm not just the one who talks about the resurrection. I am the resurrection. The only way to connect to a resurrection, Martha, is through me. And that's why it's important to make sure that it, it's not about believing all the right stuff. See, there are preachers who their goal is to send you out and make sure that you are a Bible-spouting that you know your Bibles backward and forward and you, you can teach them and, and listen, that's great. That's great. We should be able to do that. And I, I, secondarily, I have that as a goal. I, want, I would love for you to be able to go out and take your Bible and teach and know what it says. I'm not suggesting that that's not important. But first and foremost, what I want for you is that you know Jesus, that you have a relationship with him, that it informs your life every single day and changes the way you live your life and the way you relate to your spouse, the way you relate to your kids, the way you work for your boss, the way you do your leisure, that it changes everything about your life. Imagine that moment. Your brother has just died. You went through the funeral. The only guy that could have saved your brother decides not to get there on time. He shows up late. And now he's looking at you and he says, no, no, Martha, I am the resurrection. Do you you not understand? It's me. I am the resurrection. It's not what I teach. That's a pretty exclusive claim. There have been people who've come along and they've said, this is the way to eternal life. There have been people who've come along and said, this is how you get to heaven. Lots of other religions have talked about life after death, but here's the thing. Nobody ever said, I am the resurrection in a body. Only Jesus said that. Only Jesus said that. It's powerful. But you know what the interesting thing to me is, is even after that statement, and really, who, who 
It's hard to believe that. As much as you would want to believe that, could you truly believe all of that could be bound up in one person? And so on the night Jesus was arrested, those who had seen his miracles, those who had watched Jesus do miraculous things, those who had heard him teach, when Jesus was arrested that night, they scattered like cockroaches. Peter, who, who loved Jesus. I, there's no doubt in my mind that Peter loved Jesus. But Peter put his mouth in gear before he put his brain in gear most of the time. And he said, Jesus, I'm going to be with you to the end. And, and, and Jesus looked at him and said, Peter, the truth of the matter is, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Okay, you're going to sell me out. You're, you're not going to be with me. And that's exactly what happened. And as critical as we are tempted to be of Peter and as easy as it would be to single him out, the truth is, those guys didn't know what to think about all this. They had seen so many things, miracle upon miracle. But once Jesus got pinned to the cross, everything changed for them. It didn't make sense anymore. This is the guy that told us that he was life, and now he's dead on a cross. It makes no sense. It's over. What do you do when the person who claimed to be life has his life taken away from him? What do you do when the person who said, I am the resurrection and the life, is laid low in a tomb behind a rock? The disciples didn't even show up to claim the body of Jesus. They didn't show up at the crucifixion. They were scared to death. In their mind, great lessons, Jesus. Really cool watching you do that walk on water thing. I'd love to know how you did that, by the way. Water into wine, awesome. How'd you do that? Pulling all those fish out. I mean, you're a heck of a fisherman. Great speaker, but it doesn't really matter much anymore. So they scattered. John 19, verse 38 tells us what happened. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate, this is after Jesus has been crucified, asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. There are some people in this room that that describes you. You're a Christian, but secretly because you fear people. And I would call you to get over that. Don't be afraid. But Joseph is afraid, but now he's seen Jesus crucified and something has changed in him and he is bold. He goes to Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus. Do you understand what a big request that is and the risk he's taken? Verse 39, he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Can you imagine carrying all that stuff around? Verse 40, taking Jesus' body, the two of, the men, the two of them wrapped with the wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. And you read the rest of the Gospels, and you get, to the, you get the sense that from their perspective, this is the end, it's over. He's dead. How do you go on living when the one who claimed to be life has had his life taken away from him? What do you do now? But then chapter 20 
is beautiful. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, that would be John, that's the one writing this, and he always refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. The one Jesus loved and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. She is not thinking about a resurrection. She thinks that the body of Jesus has been stolen. None of these guys were expecting a resurrection. Do you understand that? Nobody is standing around the tomb going 10, 9, 8, 7. You know, like we do on New Year's. Like, it's going to happen any minute. No, there's nobody around the tomb because they all think it's over. Verse 3, so Peter and the other disciple... This is so funny to me. Started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter. John wants us to know he's faster. And reached the tomb first. He bent over and he looked. So John gets there. He's going to get there, but he's going to stop. He's not going to go in. And he looks inside. But then Peter, God bless Peter, verse 6. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. I envision Peter a lot like me, kind of a big guy. Takes a while to get everything in motion, you know. Takes it a while to get it all going in the same direction, and once you do, takes a while to get her stopped, right? Like, whoa, downshift, right? And I just see Peter, I see John peeking in, you know, like, like I see John is smaller, and he's kind of peeking in, and Peter's got it going, and now he can't get it stopped, and he just busts right on through, right into the tomb. He blows right past John. And he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth, this is verse 7, the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. So what do you make of that? Let me just ask you this question. If you were going to steal a body in the middle of the night, because I know you lie, lie awake at night thinking about, I'm going to steal a body in the middle of the night, right? If you were going to do that, would you take the time to unwrap the body? Would you take the time to take all the linens off and move the body over here and then take the linens and fold them up neatly and take the headpiece that, that had been around the head and fold it up nice and neat and put it down right where it had been and leave it so that it's pristine and then take the body and run? Or would you just take the body and run? And what we're told here is that verse 8, finally the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, he wants to make sure we know that, also went inside, and it says he saw and believed. Brett, are you telling me that he didn't really believe until that moment? That's kind of what it sounds like. Or at least he had believed, and then he saw Jesus crucified, and he thought, well, it's over, and he'd gone into a period of disbelief, and now he sees that linen on that thing, and he's like, wait a minute, he, he was not carried out of here. He walked out of here on his own. And he believed. He got it. Jesus was the resurrection and the life. He was who he claimed to be. And he wasn't absent from the tomb because somebody took him. He was absent from the tomb because he raised from the dead. He is risen indeed. Yeah, you can clap for that. You can clap for that. Now, I got... Three more pages of notes, but we need to get out of here. I want to just end with this. When I was a young man and I bought my first house, the way that went was 
we drive by this house. Hey, that's a cool house. Could we envision living there? Could we even afford that? You imagine mowing the grass, right? You imagine repainting something. You imagine living there. Picture your family there. And, you know, sometimes when they sell a house, they've got the for sale sign. And sometimes with the for sale sign, they've got the little piece of paper that you can get. And I don't know if you're anything like me, but if I want to know about the house and I want one of those little pieces of paper, you know, I'm kind of like, like James Bond, like I'm stealthily, you know, try, I don't want anybody to see me get that piece of paper. And so I'll run and grab it and run back to the car like I'm going to get shot or something. And, and I take that piece of paper home and I'll look at it. I looked at the paper, saw how the house was constructed, when it was made, you know, what the price is, square footage, all that kind of stuff, gas, heat, what electric, what is it? And you start to think, is this something we could afford? You talk it over, can we, could we do this? There's a number at the top that has the realtor's name on it. You start asking questions, should we call them? Should we make an offer? You do, you call, you make the offer. But the house isn't yours yet. You even settle on a price. You might even go back and look at the house again. You settle on a price, but the house still isn't yours. You have an inspection. Somebody comes and looks at the house to make sure it's worth what you're going to pay for it. And, and then the next thing that happens is the day finally comes, what, the day we call closing day, right? Now think about the first time you bought a house. And, and they come in with a stack of papers this thick, right? And they start shoving papers in your direction, and they say, sign this. And, of course, you're young, and you don't know any better, and you're like, oh, no, I'm reading all these. And after about three of them, you're like, we'll be here 10 years. We'll never get, I'll never, we'll never get out of here. So pretty soon, they just start sliding papers, and you're signing them, right? Like, just, okay, I'll sign it. I could not believe how many times I wrote my name that day. And I, who knows, I may have signed over a, a life savings somewhere. I'm not sure. She could have done anything. But there comes a point where she slides the last paper over. I sign that last paper. And then a check changes hands. It goes from her, and it basically represents my money, what I'm going to pay for this house. And it gets handed to this family. Or it goes to their account or whatever. But it's not coming to me. And the numbers on that check are bigger than any numbers I've ever seen for a check that was in any way related to me. And then she stood up, she shook my hand, she handed me the keys, and she said, you are now the proud owner of a new home. And I had closed. Listen, some of you need to close. Some of you are in various stages of purchase, and you've signed some things, and you've looked at some stuff, and you're, you know, you're doing the appraisal, and but here's the thing. Even if you came, walked in here and you think you're an atheist, there are people, I've encountered you, I've talked to you, I know. You tell people that because it keeps them away and it scares them and it works for you and I get it. But there's a part of you that you don't talk about with anybody else and you definitely wouldn't talk about it with me. But I know what's going on inside of you. And there's a part of you that says, but I'm not sure. What if I'm and I really do want to believe, but I've said this for so long. Listen, you do the research. You ask the hard questions. And if you want, I'll help you. Come talk to me. I'll, I'll do it. I won't try to sell you. I'll try to walk you through what I know and understand. But listen, you need to close. Do not let another day go by that you allow your life to be unforgiven. Jesus Christ went to a cross to pay for every sin you will ever commit in your life. And the trade is your life for forgiveness. That's a no-win, that's a win-win situation, right? Like there, there's, that's, how do you say no to that? 
You say yes to that. Close. Close. Get to me. Get to somebody that can help you with this. Don't let another day go by. I'm going to wrap this up. I'm going to pray. The band's going to come out and sing. Happy Easter to you. We love you. Um, Hope you have a great day. Pray with me. Father, may you be glorified by what we've done here. And Father, we the, the fact that you sent your son to die for us and that he conquered the grave, what great victory that is for us. And we leave this place excited. We leave this place knowing that we have a father who loves us and would go to any length to see that we are brought back to him. And so, Lord, we start thinking about all this, and it's a little bit overwhelming. And for the person that's in here that has struggled with what they believe or their atheism or whatever, whatever shape it takes, I pray, Father, that you would be speaking to them in the next few days. Let them hear your voice. Show them what they need to close. For the rest of us, Father, we leave here with our hands raised high and praise to a God who would do anything for us. We're thankful for you, Father. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.